Welcome to Voices of Esalen, the podcast that explores the inspiring conversations and transformative ideas emerging from the Esalen Institute. I'm your host, Sam Stern, and in this episode, we have a truly special guest who graced the Esalen stage recently with his wisdom and insight, Dr. Ken Dykwald. Ken Dykwald is best described as a visionary thinker. He's a psychologist, a gerontologist, a masterful public speaker, and the best-selling author of more than 19 books, who has dedicated his life's work to understanding the implication of human potential for all people. Over the course of his career, he has become one of America's foremost authorities on aging-related issues, shaping our understanding of lifestyle, marketing, healthcare, economics, and the workforce, all in the context of an evolving and aging society. Ken is the co-founder and CEO of AgeWave, an acclaimed think tank and consultancy focused on the global opportunities of rising longevity. His groundbreaking insights have garnered international recognition, earning him prestigious awards and accolades. In 2016, he and his wife, Maddie, received the Esalen Prize for outstanding contribution to advancing human potential. In this captivating talk, Ken dives deep into his Esalen story, from the first encounter groups he ended up in as a 19-year-old, to rubbing shoulders with the likes of John Lilly, Ram Dass, and Timothy Leary, to the best-selling book he ended up writing at age 22, Body Mind. He also traces his path into the field of gerontology and reveals some of the cosmic magic that awaits us as we embrace the power of aging. All of the wonderful stories and life lessons you're about to hear, and many, many more, can be found in Ken's newly released memoir, Radical Curiosity, My Life on the Age Wave. And by the way, all of Ken's earnings from this book are being generously donated to Esalen. So with no further ado, let's embark on this enlightening journey led by one of the OGs of Esalen, Ken Dykwald. It's conceivable that I might say something tonight that could change the rest of your life. It's also conceivable I could say something tonight that offends you. Uh, not necessarily in a, you know, Trumpian sort of way, but it may be something different than what you believe or what you've come to. And, you know, I'm in a place in my life where, you know, telling my truth is something I keep trying to do. So I'm going to put out my own thoughts about things and you can reflect on them and think, eh, I don't buy that or I don't see it that way. And some of what I'm going to talk about is kind of cosmic professional and some of it is personal. And I will spend a little bit of time uh, talking about uh, back in the day. By the way, everything I'm going to tell you tonight is true. For me, at least. At least as, as I recall it and my memory is intact. Okay. So I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. This is my high school graduation picture. Oh. Was I thinking that day that at some point downstream I would be in front of you guys here at Esalen? I did, it had not crossed my mind. I went to a small engineering school in Pennsylvania, Lehigh, to become a physicist. I was considered a math prodigy, and I had applied to MIT and Lehigh. I got in Lehigh early, and neither of my parents had been to college, and I didn't know that MIT had a brand that was, like, off the charts. So Lehigh accepted me early. I went to Lehigh. My junior year, I had to take a humanities course, and so I decided to take a psychology class. I had no idea what psychology was. Never been to a therapist, never studied anything about psychology, Wasn't sure I could spell it. The teacher teaching this class called the class The Psychology of Human Potential. And he was a young guy, grew up in Brooklyn, 
but happened to have gotten his, just finished his PhD at Stanford. Knew the Grateful Dead, knew the Merry Pranksters, was kind of hip to Eslin, was an unusual kind of character, and not the kind of person I would have expected to have met at a little engineering school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And so I walk into this class, and the very first book, my first psychology book, was The Varieties of the Psychedelic Experience (laughs) by Masters in Houston. And I thought, I started reading, I thought, whoa, like, what is this, you know? (laughs) What is this world? And then we read uh, Toward a Psychology of Being by Abraham Maslow, and then we read Joy by William Schutz, and then we read Psychotherapy East and West by Alan Watts. And um, I kind of had my mind blown because the premise of it all was that humans, you, me, we, have extraordinary potentials that are largely being ignored or denied or just not attended to. Maybe as much as 95% of us we're not using or feeling or tasting or being with. And that, I just had never heard an idea more amazing than that. In addition, there were technologies. We didn't call them technologies. There was stuff you could do. Uh, Some of it ancient, tai chi, yoga, meditation. Some of it more modern, biofeedback, bioenergetics, gestalt therapy, encounter groups that could help you unleash these potentials. So, to the great dismay of my mom and dad, I quit, I quit school because at the end of all the books, the bios, it said blah, 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 William Schutz, blah, 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 teaches Harvard, left Harvard to be an instructor at Esalen Institute. Alan Watts, blah, 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 Esalen Institute. Aldous Huxley, Esalen Institute, Esalen Institute. And I thought, you know, there was no internet, of course. I thought, I don't know what that place is, but something's going on there. So, I sold everything I owned. And um, I did not know you were supposed to take a workshop and then digest it. I thought it was like a semester. So I signed up for workshops Friday to Sunday, Sunday to Friday, Friday to Sunday, Sunday to Friday, Friday to Sunday, Sunday to Friday, Friday to Sunday, Sunday, for a half a year. My, that was my first bite. My parents cried. My father, never seen my father cry before that moment when they said goodbye to me because I was going off to some crazy, commie, weirdo, nudist, some kind of strange thing that they had lost their son. There was a van that used to pick people up in San Francisco and drive them down here. And if you've grown up in Newark, New Jersey, then you lived in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden... You know, right about where Rocky Point is, 11 miles out of Carmel, all of a sudden the mountains rise up and the cliffs become extraordinary. And the ocean waves are profound, you know. It's not like the Miami Beach waves, you know. The driver said, this is God's country. And I thought, wow. Wow, where am I? I was 20. My first workshop was called Body Mind, and it was being taught by Will Schutz. And it was in the room up there that used to be called Fyro, and then 
it's called Rolf, or now it's Selver. I don't even know if they run work. But it was sort of the biggest workshop room on the property. There was no Huxley at the time. And I, again, had never been in a workshop. I don't know how you guys feel coming here, but I was excited. I was nervous. I thought, who who is the me I'm going to discover? And I go up to this workshop, and I was like by decades the youngest person in the group. And it was kind of hippie time. You know, if you saw the last episode of Mad Men, it was kind of accurate. So bras were not the thing. Headbands were going on. Unshaved armpits for women, guys with Birkenstocks, mutton chop sideburns, first names. So you didn't really know anything about people, but we were all here. So Will had us, I remember it so accurately, he had us get up and he did what he called a micro lab. And he said, I want you to walk around and nobody talk and touch people in a way that's okay. So all of a sudden, we're all walking around, and people are touching me and feeling me in my face and my all kinds of stuff. And I'm thinking, like, what's happening here? You know, like, what have I done? You know, I was in college just a few minutes ago, and now I'm here doing this. And then about 10, 15 minutes into it, Will said, all right, I want everybody to go outside the room. It's right over there. And I want you to take off all your clothes And come back in and find the person to whom you're least attracted and sit in front of them and tell them exactly why. (laughs) Not making that up. So there was an idea underneath it, which was that we live in a facade and we put on our clothes and our makeup and our hairdos and our styles as a way to cover ourselves. And Will not only was a psychologist, but he had been heavily influenced by Wilhelm Reich. He was also a rolfer and was very taken by the work of Moreno, psychodrama. His belief was, he was not alone, that if we could break people down swiftly to a place of vulnerability and openness, you can get to the work. Now, is he right? Is he wrong? Don't know. But that was the idea. And for the next five days, we encountered nude and deep stuff. Death of a loved one that someone hadn't fully processed. So we all acted it out. So your brother died. You never said goodbye. Find a person in the room that reminds you of your brother. Position him in the room. Who wants to be the mom? Who wants to be the dad? And we all acted out this woman's saying goodbye to her brother. And everybody starts crying because we all have got some loss and grief and stuff that we haven't worked out. And the week unfolded. And as the days unfolded, more and more stuff came out. And I began to realize, naive me, that, wow, some people grew up in some really shitty households, you know. They had some crummy parents or they weren't treated with, kindness or fairness, and I thought, wow, I never knew that that existed. Then, by the kind of Thursday, everybody was feeling like they kind of cared about each other. It was sort of this thing was happening where feelings were growing as we shed some of our armor. We were open to feelings, and the group became our community. And then they left, but I stayed. 
And then the next workshop was with Charlotte Silver and Charles Brooks, and it was on sensing. What is that? I never took a course in that in high school. Well, we all went outside and just felt the grass. Or find a rock and place it in front of your face and spend the morning feeling it. And tomorrow, someone is going to touch you. Not sexual, no intentions, just feel what it is to be touched. And I thought, first of all, it was magical. And then Jim Simpkin, a dream workshop. And all of a sudden, I'm in the room with a bunch of strangers, and people are putting their dreams out. Now, people's dreams are nuts, man. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to talk about, you know, who's your favorite basketball team. It's another thing that, you know, you got a gargoyle that comes out of your butt and it chases a, a robin and around the room. And, you know, it's like, what's going on inside of people's minds, you know? And then that one ended, and it's something like this. And then there was a Tai Chi workshop being taught by a woman named Judith Weaver. Did you know Judith, Nancy? She was pregnant. So out on the deck, she was, her tanchen was very visible. And um, so we're learning about Tai Chi and about balance and about movement and flow and what happens in the mind. And I'm like, I mean, and I was a terrific athlete when I was growing up, but I had never done anything like that. And then I took a workshop with Dick Price, co-founder. And he put out a premise. Chris and I were talking about this because I mentioned this a year ago. He said, okay, here's the deal. Uh, this is a day room in a mental institution. So starting now, I want everybody to be their version of crazy. And so some people started whacking off, and other people are gibberish, and other people are screaming and yelling, and I'm like, whoa, like, what planet are we on, you know? And so this kept going week after week, month after month. And I was particularly taken by Will... Schutz and Dick Price. John Lilly had just finished his work with interspecies communications with dolphins and was beginning before the samadhi tanks and before ketamine. He was beginning to build a model of human consciousness that was amazing. And so to be in a room where he and Alan Watts and Ram Dass were having a debate about consciousness and then they went down to the baths and I just sort of follow them down. <laughs> and, uh, and then Sam Keane joins them who had gotten his PhD from Princeton in, in theology and they're like talking about consciousness and I'm thinking like, what is consciousness? What are they talking about? But by the morning time when the sun rose, I felt like I got a little bit of a feeling for what this consciousness thing is. And then one night I'm in the lodge, I'm having dinner with Will Schutz and he says, oh, hey, Tim, come on over. You want to join us? And he says to me, do you mind if uh, one of my friends joins us? I said, no, sure. Hi, I'm Tim Leary. So there was a moment in time where people came here with the belief it maybe was like the left bank of Paris, but maybe the idea was that you could be in the presence of provocative, curious, mind-expanding, body-expanding explorers. And together we might conjure up a new humanity. Now I fully understand how corny that sounds today, but I still believe it. I spent the next four years in this place. So we would have pictures taken each week, uh, right over there.
And I would say half of the workshops that I was in were done nude. And now people say, wow, that's so weird. I mean, like... But the idea of it was the trees are not dressed, you know, the flowers are not wearing extra clothing. Let's be who we are, period. So I want to say something about this. I'm a curious guy. I wasn't so aware of that growing up, but I began to discover my curiosity. And I began to notice week after week after week after week in workshops as people working out anger and fear and sadness and grief and sexual frustration that their bodies were shaped in certain ways and they moved in certain ways. That had I been Sigmund Freud where my back was to the patient and the patient was fully clothed, I wouldn't have noticed anything. But I began to notice like, wow, when people were crying out of anger, it was coming out of the right side. And when they were crying out of sadness, it was coming out of the left eye. Different people. And that when people were bottling up a certain kind of anger, I watch what happens to the shoulders. And I watch what happened to the diaphragm and how it froze. And then I'd watch people be clenching certain muscles that had no business being clenched. None of that would have occurred to me, and there's also Hector and Will, and a few, Hector Postera wrote The Body Reveals. During that time, we began to imagine that our emotions were embodied. Now, for those of you living in the modern era, that was a radical idea, because we had medicine, and we had psychology, and there was not much of a belief that there was a lot of crossover. So when I was 22, I was beginning to map out not just what I said, but all sorts of things. You know, the bulbiospongiosis muscle group, the triceps and what feelings they associated with, and what got held in the jaw, and when did people clench their feet. And then I began to imagine that as people held certain emotions over a period of years or a lifetime, the body shaped around that. So... form and function and structure had a lot to do with each other. And then somebody dropped in my lap a copy of Woodruff's book, The Serpent Power, about the Kundalini chakras. And they matched. So when I was 22, I wrote Body Mind, which is still in print in about 20 languages, uh, 50 years later. So I thought to myself, I have found my groove. I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a big sir person, I'm an excellent person, and I was in the catalog leading workshops when I was 22. Some with Will, some on my own, and some they used to have a thing called experiencing excellent. And I thought, I'm just going to do this for life, you know. So I know my kids are now in their 30s, and they somehow, they took a seminar or read a book or something on the internet where it says, you know, get a vision and then it'll manifest, you know. So I had a vision and I thought it was going to manifest. And then, at this point, I had moved off of the property and I was living in a little cabin across from the River Inn. Now, for those of you who were around in the 70s, Big Sur was not the same cultural scene as it is now. Hell's Angels used to come down and hang out at the River Inn. There were convicts hiding in the mountains. 
you know, Erica Jarong, Erica's a friend, but she wrote Fear of Flying in 1973, and all of a sudden women everywhere were looking to have sex with people they wanted to have sex with. So it was sort of, and, and there weren't any diseases that were going to kill you. So there was a sort of a widespread sexual play taking place. And hippies, gypsies, I used to say the people who could afford to be in Big Sur were either so rich that money didn't matter or so poor that it didn't matter. But it was this, uh, and 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 I would have to say, and movie stars, and I could go on, but I don't. I don't want the whole night to be about that. It was a very provocative coming together place. So my cabin, which I paid, uh, crushed me to have to pay it, but I paid one hundred and fifty dollars a month for, and I had twenty five acres to walk with my dog on, but, but that was a lot of money. But it was, if you know the river in, just north of it, there's a bridge, and it's locked. So it wasn't that people were wandering onto the property, but one morning at 5.30 in the morning, bang, 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 on my front door. I was naked, because that's how I slept. Cabin was tiny. And I come to the front door, and there's a guy standing there, it looks to me like Clint Eastwood on acid. <laughs> Handsome, but like nuts. And by the way, there's a lot of, like, when Jeff Kripal wrote his book about Essen in the old days, he left out, like, the nuts people. There was a fair percentage of really strange people in Big Sur back in the day. <laughs> well, in any case, I didn't know what I had on my hands here, so I said, can I help you? He says, who are you? I says, my name is Ken. I live here. Who are you? He says, I'm Jan Brewer. I own this house. I says, well, I've been sending you checks in New Zealand every month. What are you doing here? He says, I'm back, and I want this house back. I said, no, man, I got a lease, you know, like, I'm here. This is my thing. You know, there's a river. I'm like Siddhartha, man. I'm like, <laughs> reaches into his vest, puts a gun to my head, and he says, you're leaving, and while you're at it, I want you out of Big Sur. That was a surprise. Um, so a friend of mine, Gene Houston, knew that I was living in my van without a place to be or what to do, but I was familiar with all these different therapeutics and, you know, was finishing up Body Mind, also finishing my doctorate on the psychology of the body. She says, I've got this friend Gay Luce in Berkeley that just wrote this book, Body Time. She's leaving her job with the NIH as a writer, in Washington, she's in Berkeley now, she wants to create a year-long human potential curriculum. You ought to join her. So I thought, all right, so I'll go check it out. I'll move to Berkeley. I moved up. I drove up to Berkeley. I met Gay, and she had partnered with a woman named Eugenia Gerard. And we started putting together a kind of a study group. Back then, people weren't putting together like venture capital funds. They were putting together like people who wanted to try to do something good for the world. So there was a guy that Gay had met in San Francisco named Stuart Brand, who had just done the whole Earth Catalog. I just was with Stuart a few weeks ago. And Stuart said, I like what you guys are doing. I'm going to give you $5,000. I want you to file as a not-for-profit so that maybe you can get some funds someday, somewhere. So we had to make up a name. Are we going to be the Consciousness College? Are we going to be the Human Potential University? Are we going to... It's going to be a year-long program. 
So we made up the phrase holistic health. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure. The word holistic has been used by a South African philosopher named Jan Smoots, having to do with political ecosystems, but never applied to health. So we started doing this, and uh, Gay's mom was sick. She had hypertension problems. And so Gay said, let's do some biofeedback with my mom. Maybe, Ken, you could teach her some yoga, and we'll do a little foot massage. And her mom got better. So Gay decided, hey, let's do this whole holistic health year-long curriculum just with old people. And I thought, why would I want to do that? One of the things that happened was the project became massively successful, that people were coming from all over the world to observe us. All sorts of people wanted to be on our faculty, from Robert Monroe, who wrote Astral Traveling, to Joan and Eric Erickson, who had developed the stages of of uh, childhood and adulthood, to all of a sudden we had this like sort of arena of provocative people who wanted to see what might work on an older body. And we started getting requests to speak about our work and to set up similar programs around the world. And Gay, to my advantage, didn't like doing that kind of thing. So she said to me, and I was 24, why don't you go do that? Why don't you go give that speech on the future of aging? Here, why don't you go to Denmark and set up a project on wellness and holistic health for older people? And then, as I began giving speeches around the world, I got invited to be an advisor to what was then called the Office of Technology Assessment, which was the think tank of the U.S. Congress. It was a nonpartisan think tank. And the purpose of it was, this is 1982, was to study how America and the world were going to be transformed as more and more people were going to be living longer, differently. So I began to put some things together, and I said, well, here's a life expectancy. This goes up to 2020, obviously, beyond where we were in 82, but something crazy happened in the 20th century, which is that breakthroughs in antibiotics and pharmacology and self-care and nutrition management and refrigeration and surgical procedures. One of the outcomes of all of that stuff was that people who would have otherwise died young didn't. And so for the first time in history, we started having more and more older people and more and more people started thinking, I might live to 70 or 80 or 90. You know, when Eric Erickson did his eight stages of life, Five of them were childhood. By the way, if you really want to spin your brain, over 99% of human history, the average life expectancy at birth was under 18. Now, I know that there were some 30 and 50 and 70-year-olds, of course, but the average life expectancy was under 18. And so this has never happened before. By the way, if you want to know how well we do in the United States, we've gone backwards. We're now at 77 but there are 37 countries in the world that live longer and better than we do. We've we got a really crappy level of health or longevity in this country that spends so much money. But I thought, wait a minute. We've designed our world. I read Gulliver's Travels. You know, the length of time it takes for the traffic lights to change was geared to the swift movement patterns of young people. The chairs we sit on in our public environments were designed around the form and fit of 22-year-old men, typeface in our printed materials. The auditory range in our phones and our devices is all geared to a certain youthful ear. 
Medicare was not designed to care for older people. I know we have doctors in the room. It was designed to make sure doctors would be paid. We have 180 medical schools in America. It's only 13 departments of geriatrics. 90% of all the doctors and nurses who graduated last year did not take one elective in geriatric medicine. It's like, wait a minute. These are limited-spectrum fluorescent lights. They flutter very quickly. If you're young, there's no issue. But if you're a little bit older, you look up, you can look down, you're going to see pulses. And I could go on. And what I began to realize was doorknobs were not designed for people with arthritis. And TV shows were all being oriented towards young people because of the so-called idea of you know, lifetime brand loyalty, that if we can get you buying our toothpaste or car or whatever when you're 17, you'll never change your mind for the rest of your life, so let's not bother with 40, 60, or 70-year-olds. And then under that, I realized, wow, we live in a culture that's ageist. Breed has been a friend of mine for a half a century. If I hadn't seen Breed for a while, I said, hey, Breed, great to see you. You're looking really young today. She might say thanks. But if I said to Brita, hey, Brie, it's good to see you. Boy, you look old. <laughs> so, like, who decided that? We were in my family, was in Nairobi a few years ago, and we were with the Maasai tribes. And older people there are called elders. Younger people call themselves junior elders because they want to be elders. We live in a culture where everybody wants to be young. Like, whose game is that? Also epiphanous, I then became fascinated by changes in demography. The idea that our world, which has been sculpted and shaped and form fit, and the businesses you invest in and the work you do, was oriented towards who we used to be. I decided to step out of the not-for-profit sector because I was getting frustrated by the fact that everybody was always just groveling for grants. And my wife and I started a company. And one of the things that I became captivated by was that two-thirds of all the people who have ever lived past 65 in the entire history of the world are alive right now. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's going to seem, I'm not sure how to say this without it seeming obnoxious, but... So, right before COVID, I spoke at a conference, and the other speaker was Harrison Ford. And... Harrison's a good guy. He's a climate activist, and he gave a rousing speech. We've got to get all the young people in the world planting trees, save the planet. And then I had a private meeting with him afterward. And I said, great speech. Love your movies. Nice to meet you. Thank you, Ken. And I said, you realize there's a billion people in the world over the age of 60, and nobody's tasked them with anything? Why don't you get them planting some trees? <laughs> and he looked at me as though, and he said, I never thought of that. Now think about this. The primary growing natural resource on planet Earth are older people. And we got a bad attitude about older people. <laughs> you know, Bob Butler coined the term gerontophobia, you know, ageism. We don't want to be old. We don't want to look old. We don't want to think old. We don't want to be around old people. It's like, excuse me, maybe think about the other direction, which is never had so much wisdom, never had so much emotional intelligence, never had so many experiences, never had people who knew so much. Sometimes people say to me, they look at pictures when I was younger and they'll say, wow, it's interesting to see who you used to be. No, I'm still that person. When you get older, you don't trade out your young you for your old you. You layer in. 
So you become a little smarter. You see the patterns. You understand what's going to work out and what's not going to work out and who's wise and who's not and who's, who's a toxic friend and who's an important friend. Sometimes people say to me, well, the future, man. You know, I mean, we all want to know about the future. And I say, well, some people think it's going to be the Jetsons. I actually have a picture of the future if you guys think you can handle it. I don't want to, like, freak you out. Okay. This picture is a few years ago. When it was taken, this little boy, Bradley, was three. His mom was 27. His grandmother was 49. His great-grandfather was 73. His great-great-grandmother was 95. And his great-great-great-grandmother was 118. Six-generation families is the future. So when I hear people, you know, my field of gerontology talk about, oh, there's the young and there's the old, it's like, that's like so 1960s. And then the question becomes, are we setting up age apartheid? Should all the young people be in this room and all the middle-aged people be in that room and all the older people be in that room? Or should we find ways to be interdependent and benefit from each other? I was asked by CNN to do the commentary when John Glenn announced he was going to be going back up at the space at 77. And I knew uh, Glenn. I had testified beside him in Washington. He was a tough guy. And I watched his first interviews, and all the young reporters were really kind of poking at him. Wait a minute. Aren't you a little old for this? What happens if you have to go to the potty? What happens if your head blows up? And Glenn turned to these reporters, and he said, Hey, Just because I'll be 77 doesn't mean I still don't have dreams. And the psychologist in me thought, wow, that's interesting. I think we think that you have dreams when you're young. Then you either fulfill them or you don't. So how do you have new dreams? When you're in your 70s, let's say you've lost a loved one. Maybe you used to play the piano and somebody told you you weren't any good. So what? Maybe you still want to play the piano again. Or maybe you're going to write your first book of poems at 80. I have one more little piece I want to cover you guys before we chat a little bit and call it a night. When I was 27, my grandfather passed away. And I thought... By the way, I recommend that every one of you, you're here with your dad, you're here, you've got a mom that's still alive, you've got an elder brother. Think about doing what I'm about to suggest. My grandfather had passed away. My grandmother was a peasant woman. She grew up in an orphan asylum, um, was pretty much illiterate, uh, couldn't really read or write, but she was wonderful. We lived in the same house as her when I was a little boy. And then, so I thought, I'm going to take a reel-to-reel video recorder and go back and interview her. This is just a couple of minutes from that. And there'll be a moment where you'll see me. I had a pretty big belt buckle on. All right. First of all, how old are you? Well, that I wouldn't know. How come? Because when I was born, my mother passed away, and there was no record of me. What, do you figure you're over 60? Oh, yes. Figure you're over 70? Oh, yes. Figure you're over 80? That I don't know. Around that age, I think, I was in the orphan asylum in Elizabeth. I don't know how long I was there. I stayed there quite some time. And then when I got a little older, I 
whoever took me in, I boarded with them. How old were you then? Were you very little? Oh, I was a little girl, yeah. In my bare feet. Half the time we didn't have no shoes. We had no electric lights. We used to burn kerosene lamps. And uh, there was no bathtubs. And the, uh, the bathroom was about a block away from the house. You had to use a lantern to go out there at night. How did Grandpa feel about you? Well, he was in love with me. How did you know? <laughs> because he always told me. What do you mean? Well, he always told me how much he loved me and that he couldn't be without me. And he loved me very dearly. He was a very good husband and a good father. We used to sit and watch television, and when the uh, number would come up, we'd get up and dance, the two of us. No, you didn't. Yes, we did. We'd get up, and he'd take me in his arms, and we'd dance. Did you like that? Sure, I liked it. If there's a kind of message you'd like for all of us children and grandchildren to live on after later on, 20, 50 years from now, what do, you, what do you want us to learn from you that we can continue doing? To be good, honest, respectable, and live happy with your families, like I lived happy with my husband. You're a sweetie, Clara. That's enough? For now, we've got a few more things to do. Why do you think we're doing this? I don't know you, because you want to remember me. And you like me. <laughs> right? That's right. That you love me. I do love you. And I love you too. From the minute you were born, I loved you. And find a nice girl and get married and I'll love you double. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys. See you at the best. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Just a reminder that the wonderful stories and life lessons you've heard, and many more, can be found in Ken's newly released memoir, Radical Curiosity, My Life on the Age Wave. And as I mentioned, all of Ken's earnings from this book are being generously donated to Esalen. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org. <laughs>